Hello, Seth. How are you? Hey, how's it going? I'm going great. Now that I finally managed to to pin you down to to an interview, <laughs> I can my ask pleasure. all my I can ask all my finance related questions. Yeah, I will. Uh, I will do my uh, certainly do my best to uh, to answer them. Okay, now that uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself a little to the to the audience? Sure. My name is uh, Seth Levine. I am a uh, I'm a professional investor. Uh, I've been doing this for uh, for almost twenty years or so. But um, you know, my kind of public face here is um, you know as the creator of uh, the Integrating Investor, which is a website, uh, kind of a blog that I started. Uh, just about, I've been running for about five years or so. Uh, just um, it's kind of my own um, my my own uh, vehicle uh, for really working through a lot of investment ideas that I have. Um, you know, just being in the job uh, for as long as I've had. Uh, you know, you, I take in a lot of different perspectives and, um, you know, I, I found that quite frankly, like, uh, things that I thought I knew I actually didn't. So I used to blog to, um, you know, kind of work, work through all those issues. Um, and you know, because I am a, uh, professional investor, I should start off with a, uh, with a, dis with a, you know, kind of disclaimer. Um, you know, these are just my, my personal views. They don't reflect, uh, my employers, um, or anything like that. This is not investment advice. Um, do your own work before you go and invest. Like I'm just speaking, um, you know, ex extremper, uh, you know, off the top of my head here. So, um, you know, don't take any of this as, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, as actionable. All right. That was the disclaimer, everyone. You cannot sue us for anything on this, uh, on this podcast. Um, but yeah, you, you mentioned that, um, you've developed over the years or you found over the years that, that, um, you have, uh, integrated some, I, I would, let's say some things from philosophy to help you, uh, with, with your profession. Would you like to speak just a little bit about it? Not as a recommendation, but just like as a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, my sort of, you know, I've gotten very into, um, uh, kind of philosophy and, and really my, my, I, I look at almost my view, you know, sort of my, um, my evolution of investing very similar to sort of my evolution on philosophy and and and, and, and what i mean by that is um you know i um you know as sort of a a you know younger you know kind of a, a an early 30s person i was introduced to philosophy or really i came to philosophy and specifically you know Ayn Rand's philosophy uh through a friend of mine um i was kind of i was early in my investing well you know you know Throughout my investing career, you know, I, I had, I had, I sat in a seat and I had sort of a view, you know, I was being taught how to invest. But as I was kind of looking out in the world, I was like, wait, like, what is going on here? So anyway, long story short, I read uh, this essay, Philosophy Who Needs It uh, by Ayn Rand. And basically a huge light bulb went on in my head um, where it was, hey, I'm a human being. Uh, human beings need a philosophy because we ha we act on volition, right? Like human beings, we're not predisposed really to anything, but really the ideas in our head are what drive us, uh, you know, motivate our actions. And I thought, huh, yeah, it's kind of like, like almost like uh, like a computer, where like you have an operating system in a computer that sort of makes all the, you know, that makes it all work. And I thought, hey. That's new to me. I really never thought about that. I have this like conscious, um, you know, I have this conscious kind of philosophy that, or su sorry, subconscious philosophy that I'm operating on. Wouldn't it be good if I knew what those premises were? So 
so long story short, that kind of drove me down into philosophy and just really my own psychology and trying to untangle and tease out what are these sort of subcom subconscious premises that my body was, uh, you know, that, that I was acting on, you know, as a human being and really consciously define that. Now, something similar happened in that in my investing career, uh, looking at like, um, kind of 2008 or so. So this actually you know, precedes my, uh, my, my, my sort of my philosophical in, in, introspection. You know, I saw a lot of crazy stuff happening, um, during the financial career. I was, you know, I had a front row seat for it. I was working at a, at one of the, um, at a prestigious investment bank on wall street on a bond trading desk. Like I literally saw, um, a lot of, a lot of the financial crisis unfold in real time, like at ground zero. And then as a consequence, I saw all the, you know, all the central banking, uh, response to that. And as I saw the response to that, I sort of had some, some ideas of what would happen, but I started reading a lot of others views of what would happen in the market. So over like a five-year period called 2008 to like 2013, I started to develop all these ideas. You know, I thought, you know, what the central banks were doing by intervening in directly intervening in the investment markets would be, would lead to a lot of bad stuff. Uh, you know, I thought it was going to be, you know, hyperinflationary, you know, inflationary, if not hyperinflationary. So I collapsed the currency. I thought we were going to see stock market collapses. I thought we were going to see bond market collapses. Um, and you know, all these, all these things, and you know, some of them I come up with myself, but a lot of them I took from, you know, popular media or, or maybe, you know, you know, uh, um, um, not necessarily popular media, but, um, you know, other kind of professionals, um, uh, um, their, their opinions, it kind of resonated with me. Like I thought gold would, would go through the roof, you know, for example. Um, so I sat here, I sat in my professional investing seat. I was now with, uh, with, with, with a different firm and I had all these ideas and quite frankly, you know, over the next 10 years, you know, none of them really came, you know, came to fruition, you know, none of them played out. And, you know, earlier in, in kind of the 10 year process, I had asked myself, all right, what, what is going on here? Right. I was faced with the dilemma. Um, reality was not verifying my ideas. So I basically had two questions. I could, uh, you know, or I, there were two paths I could go down. I could one change my ideas or really explore my ideas, or I could just kind of ignore it and invade it. So I started to explore them and that, and I did that kind of with the help of this blog and, um, you know, the integrating investor, uh, it's, you know, you could find it integratinginvestor.com. And I really used this to really tease out a lot of my ideas. And what I found through by going through this process, which is very similar to what I found going through the process of philosophical in, in, introspection is that some of those ideas weren't as clear to me in my head as I thought. And I've really just kind of gone down this, this journey. Um, and it's a parallel journey with, with, with my philosophical path of kind of, you know, kind of growing. And I, I believe kind of better identifying uh, things in my head and things in the investment markets um, to uh, lead to better success in living and investing. And how have you been finding that journey so far? Uh, it's been fascinating, um, you know, both, you know, on kind of in, in, in both, both journeys. I mean, uh, I'll talk maybe just about the investing journey uh, first, but, you know, for example, like I'll, I'll look at my, my first article on my website 
and kind of my most recent one. And they both deal with, um, they both deal with this idea of central banking. And it's pretty interesting just how much my views have changed. You know, when I came into, when I started writing and I started writing in 2008, so this is still some years after, after I started the exploration process into investing, you know, I, I really had a very, um, negative view of central banking and I still have a very negative view of central banking, but I had a very, what I'll call conventional view of central banking. Like for example, I thought central banks were printing money. I now realize through a lot of work and a lot of writing that central banks don't print money, for example. Now that is a very controversial statement that I said. Now, just because central banks don't print money in my view, doesn't mean that central banks aren't harmful for the economy. So I just think the central banking impact is very different than what people, um, than what people, what people think it is. It's still negative. And quite honestly, if you look at what is, what a bank is, it's actually completely integrated with what, with, you know, with what banks do. I see. Yeah. So, so like, for example, right. So, you know, and this, you know, coming to this view, um, and I've written about this in a, in a, in a number of articles on my site, they are not sort of in one cohesive article. Um, although you can find something called to fight the fed or not, um, where I, which was really my first sort of exploration into this in, 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 in a longer format piece. I think it's, you know, maybe three or four pages, uh, done for, uh, you know, in a friend's publication, but you know, I had to go back and basically redefine money. So, you know, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll tell this journey. Basically, you know, basically, you know, 2013, you know, I'm looking at, it was the hundred year anniversary of the fed. And it was really my first exposure into seeing, uh, critiques of the fed. You know, I had been working on wall street, you know, at that point for about nine years or so. And wall street had a very, you know, conventional view of what, of what central banking does. Um, you know, it still does, uh, have can kind I, of can a, lot of a quick question. Sure. It doesn't, doesn't wall street to some degree like the central bank or the, is it not the case that, uh, certain investors like it, that the central bank does certain things to calm the markets or to ease certain tensions in the markets? Well, wall street's a very big place. And I think you find people on both sides, uh, on both sides of the aisle. But I think what most people try to do is just acknowledge you know, they almost take a more concrete, narrow view of like, this is the world in which we live, right? We live in a world of central banking. How are we supposed to operate in this world? Um, and I think that's, um, you know, that is, I think that's uh, very integrated in one sense, because again, they have a job to do, which is invest in the, in the, in the world as it exists today. But a lot of times when you move into that policy, you know, as you, as you slide into the policy type of discussions, I think it's very counterproductive. Um, so now again, you're prescribing, you know, you're saying like what a central bank should do when really, you know, as I see it, it's perpetuating, uh, it's perpetuating the problem. Okay. So for example, you know, maybe a long story short. So how I see, you know, I, you know, I basically had a, I came to this view of central bank, like of central banking, or I was, I was introduced to a critique of central banking, which I had never been critiqued, uh, which I never really been exposed to. Then I actually learned that like, there used to be a world without central banks, which literally just sounds so silly now, but it kind of blew my mind at the time. Um, 
that there was a world of sort of just banks without a centralized bank. And I started to kind of research that a little bit more. Um, you have, you know, probably the, the foremost experts on that are uh, George Selgin and Larry White, um, their work, and they blog, um, you know, they're, they're, they're professors, but they write um, at altm.org, uh, which is the site, alt-m.org, I should say. And I just started looking at this world of, quote unquote, uh, you know, of more of decentralized banking without a central bank. And then I started to realize, all right, like, then I started to get, go down this wormhole of money. Because once you start looking at banks, you have to look at money. Because bank, if you want to understand, if you want to under, understand banking, you have to understand money. Because banks operate in the world of money. So I actually reformed an entirely different view of money um and from money i've sort of built back up my my, my understanding of banking so i came i i <laughs> it, it, it's 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 pretty interesting so i i was looking at the markets and then i was looking at markets from the perspective of central bank intervention so then i had to understand central banks but to understand central banks you had to understand banks because central bank is a specific type of bank right it's a class of bank but to understand banking, you have to understand money because banks operate with money. And to understand money, I had to li literally go back and understand what is money trying to do and what are individuals trying to do. And then from there, I was able to rebuild up my understanding of banking, right? And then rebuild up my understanding of central banking and then, re and then rebuild my understanding of investing. So it very much is you know, a parallel with philosophy where, you, where um, we're going down. If, if, I don't know if your listeners are, are familiar with the concept of um, of the conceptual hierarchy, um, which is again described by uh, Ayn Rand in her um, in her epistemology, um, you basically are building concepts from from percepts um, in kind of a chain of 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 more uh, you know in kind of increasing increasingly complicated uh, fashion, and that is exactly what investing is. So, in order to really understand investing, you have to really break down each concept. Until you get down all the way down to the perceptual level, and that is a technique that I learned from uh, you know from philosophy. So mm -hmm. from from doing all this is is how I've really rebuilt my entire view of of um, of uh, you know of money. I rebuilt my view of banking. I rebuilt my view of central banking, and I've rebuilt my entire view of investing. So uh, do you have a theory of money? <laughs> I do, and um, so really, um, again, um, nothing is new under the sun. I I. Surprise or not, um, you know, surprising or not, I actually find that Aristotle has the best uh, has the best um, identification of money. He basically wow, I, I have to hear this. <laughs> yeah, if, it, so if it's all the way Aristotle, back, to, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm so, so so Aristotle actually talks about money in his um, in in his writings, and you know, my interpretation of the um, you know of the of the translation is that he views money as just a common measure of value. Um, Basically, um, it's a way to put things in common, uh, com common terms. So money has many definitions um, by many different people. And quite honestly, they're all kind of conflicting and they're all kind of confusing. But if you go back to Aristotle, and, and, and I found a quote right here that, that, that I'll read. So Aristotle, to quote him, says, money, then acting as a measure... Makes good commens makes goods commensurate and equates them. 
For neither would there have been association if there were not exchange, nor exchange if there were no equality, nor equality if there were no commensurability. There must then be a unit, and that fixed by agreement, for which reason it is called money. For it is this that makes all things commensurate, since all things are measured by money. So basically what Aristotle is saying is that money puts things in common in common terms for each other. And that just makes a ton of sense with me. Because if you think about it, as we because there are other views of money, but when I think about what these other views of money are, they really sit upon this, this uh, Aristotelian definition. Because some common views are money, you know, money is, is thought to be many different things. You know, money is, uh, you know, and there's a big, big four, um, four items that people assume they are. Really, it's three, but basically it's one, this common unit of, of, of measure, right? The Aristotelian view. Um, it is a medium of exchange that, you know, is out there. And also people think that it is a store value. Um, and there's also another one, fourth, which is a standard measure of value, but that's really just an application of a common measure of value, right? It's basically, you know, the standard really comes out of um, comes out of that common view. But if you think about it, right, like this this view of medium of exchange and this view of storage, um, it starts to confuse things because then if you're like, all right, if we define money as as a medium of exchange, things get very confusing, right? So what then would be money? Like it's hard to identify money, right? It's hard to perceptually identify money if you think that it's a, a medium of exchange, right? Because we use gold, for example, as I'm sorry, uh, cash as a medium of exchange, right? So cash, physical uh, dollar bills, you know, for me, uh, based based in New York, if you can't tell by the accent, um, you know, that seems to be money. But you know, I most of my purchases are done by credit cards. So are credit cards money, right? Some people say, yeah, of course, credit cards are money. Okay, well, credit cards are money. Then what is money? my whole, is my whole credit balance money, right? If we want to count money, is the whole credit line that, that, that my company, that my credit card company extends to me, is that money? Or is it just, you know, is money just the amount of transactions that I have outstanding? And you know what? People are like, oh, geez, I don't know. Uh, what about checking accounts, right? What if I write checks, right? So uh, are checks money? Uh, people be like, oh, of course, checks are money. Okay, well, is my checking account money? Or what about if I can, you know, again, it's like, it starts to get very muddled. And then you'll hear people say, well, gold is money, right? Gold, every, a lot of people think that gold is money, but I can't, gold is not a medium of exchange. I can't buy anything with gold, right? If I walk into a store with gold coins, they're going to like kick me out, right? They'd be like, you can't, you know, we can't, we, we can't, you know, pay for this. And then you have things like people think, you know, then there's a whole, you know, there's a commonly used metrics of money, like M1 and M2 in economics and M1 and M2 really come from a Milton Friedman definition, which are just, it's an aggregation of various bank accounts of, at okay. like commercial banks. So they'll go and, and they'll add up all the currency in circulation, and then they'll look at checking accounts, and then they'll look at demand accounts. But why are you going to look at demand accounts? And then, then you reach in, you know, you, you, you kind of go into the institutional world, in, the institutional world of investing and the, and the financial system, you know, and you find that institutions use bonds and derivatives as mediums of exchange. So then you have a whole class of people who think, well, you know, bonds and derivatives are uh, are medium of exchange. But what about central banks too, right? Every, it's very commonly believed that 
that the Fed prints money, for example. Well, the Fed doesn't do with any of the things I just said. All the Fed has are these things called bank reserves. And that's something completely different. Those aren't medium exchanges. You know, no, 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 no individual has accent, access to, um, to a federal bank reserve. Um, you know, some, you know, commercial bank, you know, some commercial banks do, but not all, but not all finance, you know, finance companies do. So how do you start to detangle? How do you start to identify money in the world? And I'm sitting here, I'm like, man, how do we identify money in the world? And to me, that was just a glaring problem and kind of going through and researching it brought me back to, you know, Aristotle. Cause if you look at Aristotle and he says, money is just a measurement concept. In other words, Money's just a way how we can equate economic value um, and put economic value in common terms. And to me, that just like rang a bell. And I think of it in like a, in, a, in an analogy, right? And, and the analogy is this money is to length as inch is to dollar, right? Money is to length as inch is to dollar. And so when we think about length, length is a measurement concept, right? It measures spatial, it's, it's the measurement concept for spatial distance mm -hmm. right so you have to have two points that exist in space right so you need two points they have to exist right there's no measurement of uh, of space if, if if it doesn't exist so you have two points that exist and then you are trying to apply some standard in the case of the analogy an inch to it in order to measure it so we have money so we have length which is the measurement concept that equates spatial distance put spatial distance in common terms for people. We have the concept of inch, which is a standard um, by which we can grasp. You know, it's a perceptual standard by which people can grasp spatial distance. Well, money is the same way. Money basically puts economic value in common terms. Now that's kind of vague. Like what is economic value? And really like ec economic value is really anything that humans need to survive or thrive. It could be food, you know, which is like very basic to survival, or it can be art, right? Which is something that that helps humans thrive. And money is a way to is put it put it in common terms, right? Like, how do you know how much? Like, how how do we measure the value of food? Well, we say, you know, go walk into a grocery store, for example, and we say, all right, well, this this banana costs one dollar. It's the only way to talk about it, right? Like, we know the the banana is is valuable, but we can't quantify it. So really. The money, like, so really, you know, how I see it is, is every, everything that exists in the world that has value to human beings in terms of their survival and thriving, which is basically everything can be put in money terms, but you need some sort of unit called a dollar, for example, to actually ground it into reality, right? To make it graspable to our, to our brains, to put it in some sort of standard just like an inch does the same thing for spatial distance. So money is really this concept of measurement, of me this measurement concept. And then everything else that we do is some application of money, right? So cash, coins, gold, silver, credit cards, checking accounts, bonds, you know, credit derivatives, you know, central bank deposits, you know, cryptocurrencies, all these are applications of the, of the concept of money. And once I started doing that, the whole world started to make sense uh, to me. So I know that's a lot there. It's kind of abstract, you know, happy to walk through that a little bit more, but that is how going, you know, 
going down this wormhole of investing and taking this philosophical approach of taking concepts and trying to bring them down, ground them into the in the perceptual, you know, back down into uh, lower level concepts and eventually back to the perception has helped me sort of understand the investing world better. Okay, so let me let me see if I can ask two questions. So is it is it the case that when we say this banana is worth a dollar, is it worth is is the application in the sense that we want to exchange it? The worth is for the purpose of exchange. Or the wealth, is it for the purpose of us enjoying it or, or the value it is to ourselves? Because I, I would imagine that, that that could vary a little bit. And the second well, thing is, say- sorry, and before you, before you answer, and the second yeah, thing ahead. is, yeah, it, is it the case that financial markets greatly complicate uh, this process? So for example, I'm aware that in the uh, Great Depression, there was an issue that the bank the, ba- the central bank didn't uh, withdrew a lot of cash from the economy. And it's a little bit difficult to say this banana is worth $1, but when we don't have money circulating, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to complicate this or, or no, necessarily. No, it, Sorry, yeah, I think I, th- I, th- I think I understand where, 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 where you're going. And um, I'll answer, I'll answer, I'll take them in order. So the first question is why what do we what do we need this concept of money for why is money and you know is it just for exchange is it just for storage storage no and the answer is no we need this concept of money for living in general because ultimately all of our actions every human action that we take can be put in money terms right because money comes down to is a way to measure how we each live our life we all as a human being we all need to produce to live, right? If we just laid down, you know, on the ground, we were undid and took no motion, we would die, right? We literally even need, we need to expend energy to produce a breath, right? To, to produce the oxygen extracted out of our air, right? We need to take it in through our lungs and do biological processes just for the, just, and expend energy just for the process of living. And that energy requires sustenance, right? So. So we have to even go and get food for ourselves in order to live. And that process of food is an economic activity. If we produce economic value, even if we're not going to go to a grocery store and buy it, even if we're not going to go you know, and farm it ourselves, let's just say, let's take the most basic activity that we can do to get food. And it's like, go forage for food. Like that still requires human action, right? That still requires getting up, you know, taking a step, identifying mental, ex- you have to... Ex- mental energy of identifying something as food or as poison, right? That, that is actually a productive action on itself. You have to pick it up and you have to like physically put it into your mouth and physically chew it, you know, or, or swallow it. Right. So the, the very simple, every act of living is an act of economic production. So everything from exchange to like, to, you know, to savings, right? Savings is an important concept um, for, for li- for human living too. All require, um, all requ- all require this concept of money because we need to think about how much energy am I going to expend um, in order, you know, if in this moment, in order to, um, in order to live. Now, the second question of how how can we think about money in in this world of central banking um, 
or you know, financial markets where we have central banks. And quite honestly, you know, I think I think the worst thing that we have done to ourselves is um is really go is really um go down this path of a fiat currency. Right? I think fiat currency is extremely harmful. Now, I think it's harmful for different kind of different in the same reasons that people think. One now there's this concept that the currency supply can be expanded. And that is 100% true. Now, notice how I used the word currency supply and that and money supply. When we look at throughout history and we look at how sort of, you know, inflations throughout the world, what we find is really the government authorities have expanded the amount of currency, but they have not done anything to expand the amount of economic production throughout the world. So they've debased the amount of currency. But think about that for a second. That means that currency and money are not the same thing. That means that currency and value, that currency and production are not the same thing. That means they are separate concepts. And that is precisely what makes me understand, you know, what helped me understand this concept of inflation and, mo and monetary debasement. And when you go, so for example, when, you know, when you live in the U.S. and you have, you know, a dollar, you know, 20, point, 20 and two-thirds dollars defined uh, you know, uh, define an ounce of gold. When the government comes in and changes that to thirty-five, they've basically, you know, changed the measurement standard of what a dollar is. And you could see how that's how that's pretty bad, right? And really, what you have is a revaluing of all assets to the new standard. It's as if you said, okay, an inch uh, uh, um, corresponds to this much, and you would have to point to it. This perceptual amount of physical distance. And then you change it. Well, then everything measured in inch inches then changes. But now we live in this world of fiat currency. And in fiat currency, there actually is no monetary standard. You can't say this, and you have to point to something, constitutes a dollar. right? This constitutes a pound. This constitutes a euro. Back under a gold standard, you could at least say this and point to a certain amount of gold. Right? This constitutes what a dollar is. And why is that important? Because this, this amount of gold, we can relate to human, back to human productive activities. Like we can understand, we could ground it in the perception of what, what it takes, how much human effort and time and know, and know how it takes to produce that amount of gold. Now I'm not a gold miner, but I have some sense like that's not easy, right? Like I need stuff, right? I need I need geological understanding. I need equipment. Um, I need, uh, uh, you know, I, you know, and you know, I need markets. I need, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things. So now I could say, all right, well, that sort of lump of, of of physical stuff over there is about a dollar. So now I can take that lump of physical stuff and put it back to the banana, right? I can relate that back. I could put the banana and the and the gold in commensurate terms, just like Aristotle. Uh, suggested, right? There is a common term, and we call that term, you know, or you know, dollars or euros or pounds, right? When there is, say, a gold standard, a physical commodity standard, or it doesn't have to be a commodity, but a physical standard. But now we live in a fiat currency world. You cannot, you can no longer do that. There literally is no definition of a dollar. There's no definition of a pound. There's no definition of a euro. We actually don't have any. We don't know what. Things 
truly cost in the world in terms of human effort. Now we try, we use this, this idea of, uh, and I think it's, it's very valiant effort. Um, and it shows the ingenuity of, 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 of human ability. And it also shows the need, um, for having this, this perceptual monetary standard to put things in commensurate terms as Aristotle knew. Because we use things like CPI now to define this concept of inflation. So we have baskets of goods and services that we try and monitor as proxies for physical standards of, of, of this uh, of physical standards of currency that we actually need to put goods and services in commensurate terms. Now, there's a lot of problems with this. And the main problem is that the prices of goods and services change all the time, and they should change all the time. Uh, because human productive capabilities are changing all the time. They change all the time because, you know, goods and services change, the, the quality of goods and services change. And quite honestly, when you have when you have a productive economy, we should, you know, productive economy, right? We have a productive economy. We should be getting more productive over time. In other words, the price of goods and services and should fall and their quality should ins- should improve and we see that all the time so you have you should have negative you should have fallen prices you should have you know to quote the to quote the economists of the day deflation that should be the normal state of the world but in some sense that has a bad you know a bad connotation because of the way that we're using the concept of inflation today in a fiat currency regime where we now define cpi as inflation so things are getting all messed up because we have this really bad definition of money. And that flows through into investing, that flows through into central banking, that flows through into policy in a very complicated chain. But until we've defined money correctly, as Aristotle said, um, we cannot see this, this problem of monetary definition. We cannot see things like inflation. We cannot understand things like central banking. And we cannot understand things like investing because of this long con- conceptual change uh, chain that all rests upon um, you know proper um, the proper concept formation okay that uh, that was actually quite clear for someone who doesn't fully understand it um, I'm glad because it's super it's super super complicated super abstract and it's really hard to really concretize these concepts because of two things one it, one be because of how complicated it is but two we hold these we like we all we all use these definitions in our mind like like even my like infant kids you know or toddler kids can understand money like right even they know like money is like that was the key to getting like certain things so we, we form these concepts really early on but if we don't form them correctly you know we could see how we just compound the they, they compound the mistake. So we have these notions and it's really hard to go back and reform these notions unless like you're really motivated to kind of rethink, you know, everything that you believe in the world. And quite honestly, like going back to the blog, like that is really how I started my blog where I was looking at the investing world and saying, these things don't make sense. Can I, That's can, a I ask problem. A, can I ask a point about the deflation point that you sure. made? So I do understand that the inflation is is measured to the CPI basket, and as as a principle, humans, you know, innovate and become more productive over time. So in theory, 
things on that basket should go down in price over time. But also, and certainly some things on that basket do go down uh, over time. So it, so markets, just because they're more productive over time, should have a deflationary effect based on the fact that we counted through the CPI basket. Uh, yeah, does that, that make sense? That makes sense. Yeah, a hundred percent. And but there are other problems with sort of that basket too, and you know, besides just the inflationary, deflationary. Like, how do you define those basket baskets? Right now, the baskets are defined the for the you know quote unquote average person or something like that. But that's that doesn't make any sense, right? Because you know what constitutes you know maybe my cost like my cost of living, for example, is going to be dramatically different than what constitutes your cost of living, right? Or what you know, someone in, you know, someone, uh, you know, living, you know, maybe in the woods, like I live in New York city, you know, I, you know, for example, like I don't need, you know, uh, uh, cars, for example. So like, you know, my cost, my expended, my average spend for car on a car is going to be significantly less than the average spend for a car who lives in like, you know, rural Kansas or something like that. Um, so, you know, these baskets are education, right? Uh, people are not the same people, you know, people have different values and to sort of put this common value metric on someone, I think it's just, it's just a bad, it's just a bad process. Even if you're trying to, even if you're trying to do this, you know, what I think is, 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 um, you know, a, a commendable job of trying to, of trying to define, you know, what we spend our money on, you know, what we, you know, how we, on things that we live by like we just don't people don't expend their don't have the same average expenditures there's no such thing as an average person so there's no such thing as an average expend expenditure i think you just ruined it for all economists now because basically they this is their bread and butter like yeah get go go to like one person in 15 different cities ask them what's the top 15 things they buy and now we can run the economy based on our metrics what's the problem we just do an average yeah, and I think that's a problem. You know, not just all economists. I think it really is a specific class of economists. I think it's a problem with 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 macro, uh, uh, macroeconomics specifically. If you think about what macroeconomics is, you know, macroeconomics is really it's descriptive, right? It's a descriptive science because macroeconomics is really just aggregating microeconomics. It's very uh, similar to how society. Is really just an aggregation of of individuals. Macroeconomics is really just an aggregation of microeconomics. So yes, we can measure macroeconomics, uh, measure things in macro uh, macroeconomic terms, but you can't really prescribe things in terms of macroeconomic terms because there is no such thing as the micro as the macroeconomy, right? Like there's no entity that is the macroeconomy. The macroeconomy really is just an a an aggregation of individual microeconomic existence right it is, is is an aggregation of of actual things in the world that are working that are operating in an economic sense so Technic you can certainly describe things in terms of macroeconomics but you cannot prescribe things right you cannot kind of push things down in a top down fashion because you are doing things to a because the the individual constituents act differently than than the aggregation of the whole. I think I think the problem is that they kind of. I, I agree with you, but I think the problem is that they kind of do prescribe because it, even the, even the notion of uh, a market failure, or the notice or the notion of let's say income inequality, 
those are prescriptions. Those are pointing out there's an issue with the with the macroeconomy, and prescribing like these bullet points of how to address it. So I think in and of itself, like that that particular science comes with, and how to fix it based on a certain standard. Well, yeah. Well, what how how what I would um reply to that is, I think it's misapplied. I think you. I think. See, I don't necessarily think you know macroeconomics as macroeconomics is is flawed um, because again, I think you can use it um, in a descriptive fashion. But exactly what you're saying to use it prescriptively to say, oh, this is what we're observing. So hence, this is this is the this is what we want, right? If we if we're looking for some kind of you know central planning, you cannot sort of push that down because again let's say you know you could observe for example income inequality you know without making any sort of moral judgment associated with that however you cannot say there's income inequality i want to make it zero here's a prescription for it because that just completely violates the relationship between macroeconomics and microeconomics right the the concept only flows one way you can only build macroeconomics from microeconomics. You cannot build microeconomics from macroeconomics. Now, it's true there are incentive structures, but you're still applying incentive structures on the microeconomics. So it's a very perverted way of kind of using kind of the data. And I think, you know, we've seen, you know, I think, you know, to, to your point, like, I, like, the application of macroeconomics into into economic policy, I think, has been has has been pretty uh, you know it's been pretty disastrous. You know, maybe in less hyperbolic. I mean, maybe in less hyperbolic terms. You know, it has been it has been pretty poor because top down policies, I think, you know, pretty clearly do not work no matter how you know how much we try. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, change the subject slightly, but keep the theme of centralization and top-down policies you have a I'm not sure if it's yours or, or uh, Nasib Taleb's uh, fat tail uh, principle about about uh, markets and and me particularly I'm interested in market instability sure, uh, yeah. so I um yeah so I recently wrote this article I've written I've written a couple of articles about um kind of centralization and you know, I use the term stability and instability, but really better words for it are, are resiliency and fragility. Um, okay. So investment market resiliency, you know, financial system resiliency, um, and this concept of centralization. Now, I don't necessarily think it's uh, Taleb's, um, but it, this is, there's a, it is a very broad principle. Actually, the more I've researched it, um, you could, it relates to uh, computational sciences. It relates to economics. It relates to biology. It relates to ecology. Um, it it really uh, you know it's a very broad principle, and the principle is centralization creates fragile systems, and decentralization creates um, resilient systems. Why? I'd like to know exactly exactly why. And the reason why is. Um, you know, it really kind of goes back, you know, it, it, you know, we can apply it to macroeconomics, you know, that whole principle of macro versus microeconomics is that when you look at systems, so now we're talking, this is a systems analysis. So this is when you're, so this is by definition, a collection 
of individual things, right? And there, and specifically the relationship of individual things. So when you look at how individual things relate to each other, there are dependencies, their causes, and their effects. And what you what you see is when you have many, when you have a single, when you have when you have an effect tied to a cause, to a single cause, that is a very fragile system, right? Because if anything in that cause in that cause breaks down, your effect can no longer happen, right? Because you have a single you have a single cause you have a single cause of an effect. That would be a centralized system. We could look at something as a, you know, compare that to a decentralized system where you can have many causes for, for an effect to occur. In that scenario, a decentralized scenario, you, if one cause breaks down, you can still get an effect because you have, other, you have diversified your causes away. Now that is that is pretty that is pretty abstract. We we can think of it in uh, so let's maybe use some a couple concretizing examples. So one example that that I that I think about is um is like a manufacturer. Let's say you have a widget a widget maker. The widget maker has one plant, one customer, one product, and one supplier. The whole operation is geared to making the one product for that one supplier. Uh, for that one customer, and it uses one supplier. Well, that is a very that that manufacturer can be very efficient because it only has one thing to worry about. On the, it has one input to worry about and has one output to worry about, so it can get economies of scale and hence lower costs on the input, and it gets economy of scale and less you know and be more efficient on the output because it could get specialized equipment. It could run its plants. Um, very efficiently, it can you know get its transportation costs you know um, you know kind of just scale there and make that more efficient. So it would have very high profit margins if you're looking at this widget maker. However, you could see how fragile that system is. What if the supplier has a problem? Well, then the widget maker can't run. What if the customer has a problem, right? What if the customer goes out of business, demand changes, you know, at the customer or whatever? Well, then the widget maker has a manufacturing plant, but it has no customer. What if something happens at the plant? What if, you know, a, a, a tornado strikes it and the plant is damaged or an equipment breaks down, right? Then that manufacturer cannot manufacture a widget. So, while it can have, would have a very efficient operation, it would be very fragile. It'd be very you know, susceptible to any type of shock in the system. Now you can contrast that to a, let's say, a decentralized widget maker. Decentralized widget maker would, would have many customers, many plants, and many suppliers. So let's say a supplier can't deliver. Well, okay, well, that would be a problem. But there would be other suppliers there, other plants, and other customers, and the widget maker could maybe deliver less. Same thing on the customer side. The, you know, one customer fails, one customer doesn't want the product. All right, there are other customers. Look at the manufacturing side. One of the plants 
you know, blows up from an explosion, there are other plants to make the customers. So while problems on the decentralized widget maker would still be problems, they wouldn't be catastrophic. In other words, the, the widget maker would still be resilient. That's an example of sort of resiliency and decentralization and fragility and centralization. And we can apply that to, you know, a lot of areas throughout the financial system. Because the financial system is just a system. And the same thing would apply to like an ecological system. So like in ecology, there are these concepts of food webs. Food web really just, just traces the dependency of, 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 of organisms on each other, and specifically from a food perspective. So let's say you had um, you know, a swamp. I don't know. I'm going to make this up. Let's say you, you have a swamp ecosystem. And in the swamp, you have algae, and then fish eat the algae. And then you have bigger fish eat the fish. And then you have, I don't know, alligators eat, eat the algae, uh, eat, eat the bigger fish. So here you go. You have this e ecosystem of food. Well, if there's one algae, one fish, and one, you know, one, one fish and one out and one alligator, you know, let's say, you know, there's a disease that comes that kills off all the algae. Well, the whole swamp ecosystem dies because then the fish don't have any algae to eat. They die and then the alligator dies. Now, let's say you have a swamp, same, same chain, but there's many different type of algae such that one algae dies. There's still other algae for the fish to eat and so on and so forth. So that's another example of sort of decentralization versus centralized systems. I'm thinking, so this is something I'm familiar with. I'm, I'm wondering if I could, if I should add a layer to this. So in, in manufacturing, uh, there are all these sorts of systems to reduce waste and make um make the process more lean typically they will have like a one-to-one -one, or they'll try to have like a one-to-one -one relationship so let's say on the production line you have one machine or like let's say four machines but in a stream of one passing on to to another machine the the same one and when you have this sort of scenario the uh, manufacturer plant itself is very predictable and when, when it becomes very predictable, it's become simplified and you could uh, tweak it and tune it to reduce, um, again, waste and improve the process. I think when you have like a, sort of a, a decentralized system, it becomes more complex and more difficult to control from a, yes. from a central, from a central uh, point of view. Like it becomes very difficult for a for like someone to control. So let's say, for example, if you had a, a network of computers and each one of them did something very different and you and they're communicating with one another and you don't know who said what to who who's, and how did they process that particular information, you can't trace in the system what is happening at any one point in time. But uh, if you're an economy or an ecology and each individual is making localized decisions that that could alleviate the problem of complexity because from from the point of view of the local individual they are only receiving like a, a very specific amount of information and or let's say in the sense of money like they need to buy groceries 
and they and they received from the salary a certain amount of money so they can make local decisions for the for themselves the best way what they can do but if you had to plan a, a much larger economy and, and and say who who gets what food then it becomes much much more complicated and uh, practically impossible i think yeah and and there's a trade off there because the centralized systems right let's say on, on a manufacturing level like you said it would be way more efficient, right? Like efficiency increases, right? It would be more efficient to have like one language, right? Or one policy uh, to, to use your, to use your yeah. examples. Um, you know, things are easier. So the diversity, the decentralization adds complexity to it that makes it less efficient to manage, but it adds resiliency. So, you know, there are trade-offs and, you know, and it's not saying that one you know, it's really important to realize that like centralization and decentralization, one is not better than the other per se. It's, it's what application, you know, the application needs to dictate how centralized and decentralized you are because you, the application has to dictate how important resiliency and fragility are. And we're, when we're talking about something like the financial system, you want resiliency. To yeah is extremely important right an economy right is extremely important and that's why centralization is bad in my view because it makes it more fragile and in my view when we're looking at the current state of the investment markets the current state of the world economy where things feel so fragile right now mm -hmm. i believe that is a symptom of the centralization that we've seen over the past decades you know this isn't just a past this isn't just you know past two years this isn't just you know since the great financial crisis you know this is going back you know this is an, you know an evolution of centralization and decentralization throughout all of human organ organization and when i look at the current state of the world it has become more highly centralized than it has been you know in a long time and that relates to central banks being in the in the investment markets right this them buying bonds and manipulating interest rates is one way in which central banks centralize financial risks. They do that because they are in the market and they are essentially trying to overwrite, override, sorry, the decisions of what thousands, if not more, of investors are making, right? Investment markets are, are, just, are just financial transactions between individuals. And when the central bank comes in and tries to change those in a certain way, which they do by buying bonds, which they do by, by setting interest rate policy in the U.S. You know, here in the U.S., the Fed achieves its interest rate policy by literally buying and selling uh, bonds, you know, short-dated notes. So by intervening, they are actually changing, they are centralizing the markets because they are overriding the decisions of many. In order to uh, to put to put forth one 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 decision, so central well, banks are centralizing, but also we've seen this in global economies and supply chains, where companies that are worse for better or for worse have tried to make their operations more efficient. By doing that, they've outsourced more, and specifically like to China and Russia, um, for China for cheap goods and services, and in Europe, you know, for 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 European listeners, you know, they'll know that you know pretty acutely. For energy, right? And because you know, because Russia was able to, to to provide cheap cheap energy, we stopped energy development. 
because we were able to rely on this efficient source of energy in Europe. Same thing for China. We stopped producing in other parts of the world because there, we, we went to centralize these operations in China. And that could be perfectly fine because it improves efficiency. But now what we find is when we have a change in political environment, you know, we have a change in China, we have a change in Russia, where now those systems, the fragility of those systems now show. We can no longer rely on China or, or Russia to the same degree that you could you know, before. And now those systems are breaking down. And you're seeing that reflecting the investment markets, in my, in my opinion. And the same thing has happened with, with central banks. Central banks had kept interest rates low by physically intervening in markets. And now they're doing the opposite. By physic, you know, they're still intervening in markets, but they're physically selling now. And that is having you know, pretty big impacts because both of those actions have centralized both the economy and the markets, respectively, to certain degrees. Um, and as a result, they've become more fragile and less resilient. Would you would you say that uh, so when you say they try to make it more efficient, it seems to me that they try to make it more efficient for their own benefit. Um, it's not efficient for the economy. It's just that they're incentivized to or central central planners or central banks are incentivized to make things easier for themselves, so they have more control over things, and by doing so, uh, they they make things more fragile or more less robust well i mean take maybe more less of a personal view on it and in that central bankers like or less nefarious perspective is like they're just doing what they what they what they think that they should be doing so you know they think that this is how they should act um and it's not a matter of efficiency or not it's this is kind of the mandate in the world that we live in which is just i think an incorrect kind of in, incorrect so i don't know that it's self-serving so much it is self-serving right but it's what isn't self-serving right every, you know every every no, no, I'm, is self yeah yeah i'm not trying to be nefarious i'm just i'm just saying yeah. they're they're incentivized yeah, the incentives to. yeah i mean the incentive structure for a central bank to act is going to be for the for the central bank yeah and, but a central bank so like in my view right if you really wanted to have the central bank stabilize markets the right thing to do would be to decentralize which would mean take step you know not one step but ultimately it would mean disbanding a central bank and go back to a decentralized financial system now what central banker to your point is going to go up there and be like we should disband <laughs> right that's not what they're hired to do right i i um i guess i i guess i'm thinking I'm thinking more in the sense of governments rather than central banks, I suppose. So if, let's say, yeah, same thing. We don't, like we don't want people, we don't want people to do a certain behavior. So we pass a regulation. Let's say uh, we want there to be more restrictions on energy production because it, you know, we believe it, it has a negative effect for some reason, and we want more restriction on it and. We do it so we can, we as the central, as the government can control more of this particular element of the, of the economy so we can worry less about it or we're incentivized more to make it easier for both ourselves and people who are concerned about it in, in the political system, let's say. So it's not, not necessarily nefarious in, in the way that I imagined it. It's just, look, this is, 
the easier option out of the two. It's like I, I'm if if I went to the to the energy pr- suppliers and say, "Pretty please, don't do this." They won't. They may not do this. But if I tell them, "Do this because I'm forcing you to," they'll definitely do this. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think um, you know, f- for the most part. But I mean, you can look back at government, for example, and there are rare times in history where they do step back, right? Look at uh, you know Margaret you know, maybe Margaret Thatcher and the Reagan era, right? Where they did, where there were more moves towards freedom. You know, look at the founding of America, right? That was a decentralizing uh, perspective. That was a government rejecting, or maybe, you know, I guess a revolution, Uh, but really it is sort of the founding of a government that is rejecting the ideas of of centralized control. Um, So I think there are historical examples of, of their gov- of governments giving up control um but yeah to your point they're rare extremely rare and i think um you know it's sort of inherent in the problem uh you know where you it takes a culture of recognizing this and wanting to you know become more self-sufficient more resilient and more decentralized i think i think and that's I think why that you is, need to yeah i think that is a cultural and philosophical problem yeah, absolutely. I think it's a philosophical and perhaps principled approach. Certainly, Margaret Thatcher, for my my end, had a principled approach to to a lot of the decisions that she made and chose to do what is right instead of what is expedient. I suppose. Um, Steph, I I think I think I'm going to have to let you go because I think you are rushing somewhere else. Uh, but I really, yeah. really, really appreciate the conversation. It was really interesting. I do hope to have you on again and thank you so very much. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I had a blast. Uh, I wish, uh, I wish we could have, uh, you know, we should definitely follow up again. That'd be fun. These are pretty deep topics. They're pretty, um, you know, they're very complicated. They're very deep. They're very abstract. So like they really require a lot of thinking to really work our way through, I think. So Happy to, uh, you know, uh, ho- hopefully this was, uh, this was cogent enough and, uh, you know, we'd be, be thrilled to do it again. Excellent. Thank you. So, uh, I'll, uh, I'll say goodbye and hopefully we'll, we'll meet again. Sounds great. Take care. Bye.